But I would like to begin by reading from Psalm 139, verses 19 through 22. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Let me ask you this question. How have you integrated the example of that psalm into your Christian character? How have you integrated the example of that scripture into your Christian life? And do not immediately seek to hide among the other commandments in Scripture to love. The Bible is not in contradiction with itself. The commandments of Jesus and elsewhere to love our neighbors are taking this very psalm about perfect hatred into account and vice versa, as we will discuss tonight. God hates sin. He is not tolerant. He is not permissive. The Lord is slow to anger and he is patient and will withhold judgment in mercy out of his love. But he loathes sin. And the scripture instructs us to do the same. This passage tonight is going to teach us that hatred of sin is in fact love for God. In Numbers 25, God is not only going to denounce sin, as he so often does, he is going to honor a man who violently puts a stop to it. And now part of me does not want to preach the message that I have prepared tonight because I am not under the impression that anybody here approves of sin. But we have to speak against the fact that all too often we let our culture dictate the terms of our disagreement with it. It's fine if you don't approve of this as long as you don't say that. You can have a difference of opinion as long as you don't tell anyone. You can have this in your own life, but don't expect to be able to speak about it to someone else's life. They dictate the terms of our disagreement, which we cannot allow. And in this story... We are going to witness the last gasp of the sinful generation that left Egypt and the first act of faithfulness from the radical new generation who will then be counted in Numbers chapter 26. The 40 years of wandering will be over. So this is a key passage. Shall we read the first five verses of Numbers 25 together? While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. We find Israel still camped on the plains of Moab at a place called Shittim, which is a plural noun in Hebrew that means acacias, as in the acacia tree, waiting to enter the promised land in the land that had formerly been occupied by Sihon, the Amorite king. And while there, they began to, it says, whore with the daughters of Moab. And it will include in this chapter Moab and Midian. And it actually seems through the passage that the Midianites are the primary instigators here, although Moab was part of it. And it says they yoked themselves to Baal. This could imply that some of them made a formal covenant of worship 
with Baal of Peor. And by calling him Baal of Peor, this is territorial gods. Baal means the Lord or the master of Peor. And one of the Psalms will tell us that in this episode, they offered sacrifices to the dead. So perhaps ancestor was, worship was involved in this some way, or perhaps there was some kind of necromancy going on. But what we do know from the rest of scripture is that the worship of Baal and those other Canaanite gods involved sexual acts in the shrines of these gods. Baal was a fertility god. He was the god of rain. He was the god of power. He was the god of the harvest. And there was a connection in the ancient Near Eastern mind between fertility of the earth and fertility of the body. And it was believed, or at least it was conveniently chosen to be believed, that sexual activity would bring about a fertile harvest. You can understand why this would be a tempting act of worship, especially for men, we might say. They would have prostitutes provided for them to come and worship. This was a wicked temptation done on purpose at the behest of Balaam, the son of Beor, the prophet. We read in the last chapters that Balaam was expressly forbidden by God to curse the children of Israel. And in fact, he provided blessings for them from the mountain. He was filled with the Holy Spirit and blessed them. We saw the example of the donkey that saw the angel of the Lord three times. Well, in the same way, King Balak of Moab refused to see the fact that God was standing in his way. And the Lord induced Balaam to prophesy favorably to the children of Israel. But Balaam loved the riches that were available for curses. And so... In chapter 31, verse 8, they are going to find Balaam dead among the Midianites when they go to war against them. And Moses will explain in verse 16 of Numbers 31 that Balaam was the one that had given the idea to Balak, the king of Moab, as well as the king of Midian, to send the women down to the children of Israel and induce them to engage in idolatry through flirtation and promiscuous behavior. Revelation 2.14 will compare this to those in the church that were leading the new Christians to worship at the old temples and eat the meat of the gods. This is an excellent lesson for us of how the devil is unable to directly curse God's people. The devil has no authority over God's people, but what he is is a tempter and a deceiver. And like Balaam, he knows that if he can get God's people to engage in sin, God will correct them himself. Balaam told the king, I can't curse them, but their God is a righteous God. And if you can induce them to worship your gods, Yahweh will curse them himself. And God saw what they did. They went into these houses of worship. And the women would have been instructed, don't sleep with them until they have yoked themselves to the false gods. And that's exactly what happened. And it says God's anger was kindled like a fire. If you've ever been grilling in the yard and you've put firewood or you've put briquettes in the grill and you put the lighter fluid on it, as soon as you touch the flame, it immediately leaps up and you have to step back. That's what the anger of the Lord was. It was kindled like a fire. And he commands Moses to publicly execute the leaders of the people. The word there in the English Standard Version says to hang them. You may have a translation that says to impale them. And the reason we have a multiplicity of, of translations is because we're, we're quite, not quite sure how to explain this. The word in Hebrew is yaka. It says go out and yaka these leaders. That word means to break as in to break a bone. When it says that Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with the angel, it's the same word for put out of joint. Yaka, to break these people in the sun. The idea being so that everyone can see. Perhaps not even to give them a proper burial, but allow their bodies to fester. And if they had been in fact impaled, the idea would have been allow them to remain hanging. Now, it is curious to me in verse 5 that Moses does not seem to do exactly what God tells him to do. God tells him to hang all the chiefs of the people. And in verse 5, Moses tells the judges of Israel, kill those men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. And it is worth asking whether or not Moses was wrong here. 
If Moses was choosing rather than executing the leaders who were ultimately responsible for what happened under their authority to just find the ones under your authority that are guilty and execute them. It does not specify, but I think that we can safely say that Moses was not doing all that God had asked him to do in this chapter. Part of the reason is because there are unmistakable parallels in this chapter to the golden calf episode from the book of Exodus. You remember this. Consider the the similarities. They are at the foot of a mountain. And on top of that mountain, there is one who is receiving and declaring blessing upon the people. While these blessings are coming down at the foot of the mountain, the people begin to engage in idolatry and sexual immorality. In both cases, it seems there is a lack of leadership. Aaron does not stop the people, but instead casts a golden image for them to worship. And obviously the leaders of the people weren't stopping them. and, And it could be that Moses was not doing all he could to put a stop to it. But as we will see in both cases, there was a violent end put to this kind of thing and that there is blessing proclaimed upon those that stepped up to the plate. The Lord had actually warned the children of Israel after the golden calf in Exodus 34. He said, take care, beware might be another way to translate that. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim. For you shall worship no other God. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. And when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice. And you take of their daughters for your sons. And their daughters whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods. God had specifically warned them that this was going to happen. And they did exactly what he had warned them not to do. Can you see in both of these passages, the one that I just read in Numbers 25, God views idolatry and truly all sin as spiritual prostitution. They hoard with the daughters of Moab. They played the harlot with the false gods. Hosea chapter 1 verse 2, God will instruct the prophet, take as a wife a woman of harlotry for the people have committed great harlotry against me. With their false gods. Ezekiel 23. The prophet gives what is a a rather graphic and and shocking prophecy about comparing Israel and Judah to sisters that went out and committed promiscuous, terrible things. And in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3, while not stating it in such a, a manner, Paul compares the church to a virgin bride betrothed to the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that case... Any kind of immorality, especially idolatry, would be adultery against our Lord. Can you see, as I said at the beginning, and as David expressed in Psalm 139, God entirely hates, abhors, and abominates sin. In case it is not clear, let me give you some some sub-points here that will help you understand this. First of all, we look to creation God hates sin because of what it did to his creation. He created a perfect world. And he warned Adam against sin. He said, the day you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. God kept no secrets from Adam. He told him. And when evil entered the world, it corrupted and ruined and brought a curse upon everything that God had said was very good. Romans 8 verse 20 tells us that all creation was subjected to futility. Those that want to talk about how life is futile and life is pain and life is suffering, what they are expressing is life under the curse that sin brought about. No wonder God hates it. Number two, God has told us his words. God has declared in no uncertain terms that he hates sin. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16, a very famous passage. It says six things that the Lord hates. And yes, seven are an abomination to him. And it lays out, Seven different sins. And if that's not enough for you, just look at the bulk of prophetic speech in your Bible. Most prophecy in the Old Testament is not end times, last days, eschatological prophecy. 
but it is specific warning against the sins of the day. And if that's still not enough, look at the details of the law and the punishments that God laid out for those that would violate it. Number three, not just his words, but his actions. God has demonstrated that he hates sin. You cannot say God just said this in order to make a point. No, God punishes iniquity, even to the point of death and destruction. We read about this in Genesis 19, where God sent fire and brimstone down upon Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding villages until they were no more. Even to this day, we are not sure where these places were because of the completeness of their destruction. And in Revelation 22, verse 12, the Lord Jesus says, Behold, I am coming quickly, bringing my recompense with me to repay to each one according to his deeds. I mean, just look at the Torah so far. The Lord has afflicted even the children of Israel with plague after plague because they have committed sin after sin. And the ultimate picture of God's hatred of sin, number four, is the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ. There, God poured out His terrible wrath against sin upon His Son, His only beloved Son. He completed what He stopped Abraham from doing on Mount Moriah. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that He became sin for us. Him who knew no sin became sin. Therefore, what you see upon the cross is not merely the works of wicked men. It is the outrage of God against wickedness. That is the price of forgiveness. That's what forgiveness costs. We can offer it freely because it cost Jesus everything. That is God's opinion of sin, brothers and sisters. And therefore, that must be your attitude against sin, which is to hate it, to hate sin. If you need a specific instruction, Psalm 97 verse 10 tells us, Oh, you who love the Lord, hate evil. Proverbs 8, verse 13, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Amos 5, 15, hate evil and love good. Romans 12, verse 9, abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. You are to hate sin and not just sin in generality, sin specifically. You are to hate pride, to hate Heresy when you see it, to despise gluttony, to loathe sloth in yourself and in others, to hate lies and adultery, to despise wrath, to abominate greed, to hate injustice, homosexuality, hypocrisy, anything that the Lord has declared to be sin is to be hated by the Christian. This is why. Paul's teachings about Christian liberty in Romans 14 and elsewhere are so important. Because if you begin to call things sin that are in fact not sin, you bring them into the category of utter hatred. Which is why we must maintain the distinction between them carefully. Because the Bible has instructed us to loathe sin as God loathes sin. We've got to dispense with this reluctant disapproval of sin, the Christian is to despise it as God does. And when we see the Lord enact this kind of judgment and retribution against sin, not to begin to doubt and question our Lord, but to say true and righteous are your judgments, O God. Verse 6, back in Numbers 25. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. Do you have this image in your mind, this picture of the story that's being told? Well, verse 7, when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, saw it, Phineas rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman, through her belly. 
Thus, the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. And the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, Behold, I give to him my covenant of shalom, of peace. And it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. It is unclear, as I said from verses 4 and 5, exactly what punishments were doled out, if any, At the very least, we know that a plague was ravaging the camp. Perhaps this was some kind of sickness. Perhaps it was serpents as before. It does not specify. But the congregation has gathered to the tabernacle to weep and repent before the Lord. This is good. They ought to be doing that. The Lord has has told us to respond to every calamity with repentance, regardless of whether or not we ourselves are personally guilty. But as they are there weeping, one man brazenly strolls by with a Midianite woman, his new bride. And it does not specify exactly how they took notice of this. But apparently it was obvious enough that everyone knew what was going on. You've seen a new bride and groom together. It was very obvious that she was not an Israelite what they were about to do, and where they had come from. And the people weeping at the entrance of the tabernacle knew it. Now, while they had been ordered to execute the offenders, it seems that no one moved against this man. You would think that Moses or Aaron, well, I guess Aaron has passed away, but Eleazar, the high priest, or one righteous man, among the leaders of Israel would have seen this and put a stop to it. But it falls to this man, Phineas. His name means dark-skinned. Perhaps Aaron had also married an Ethiopian woman. It's not clear. The grandson of Aaron. He leaves the prayer meeting. He's done weeping. He's done sitting around waiting. He leaves the tabernacle javelin in hand follows this couple into their tent, into their bridal chamber. And if you look carefully at what it says, he speared them both through the belly. The implication that you are supposed to take from this passage is that he found them in the act of sexual immorality and killed them together. That's what Phineas did. He impaled them, which is why some people believe that the best way to translate yaka, which means to break, might mean to impale. This was a punishment that was done at this time and in this culture. This put a stop to the plague. It ended in that moment. Now, we are shocked by such an action. I saw it on your faces as I described it to you. The thought of someone doing something like that, we would expect him to be arrested at once. Take him away. But God's response was very different. And I'm inclined to think perhaps different from that of Moses as well. Because Moses had shown, I believe, reluctance to execute the orders of the Lord to the letter. But the Lord speaks and the Lord approved. He says, Phineas has turned back my wrath. Which was the job of the priest, was it not? To atone, to make atonement, to cover. And it uses the same Religious word to describe what Phineas did. What normally the priest was to do was to offer a sacrifice. But why was a sacrifice to be offered? Remember with me. The sacrifice was to be in place of the sinner. So when Phineas takes the life of the sinners rather than offering a sacrifice, he is propitiating the same wrath of God as the priest should. And we should not look at this and say, that's not fair. They should have received a sacrifice. Every opportunity of covering sacrifice was mercy. This is what they and we all deserve for every sin. 
because it says he was jealous for the Lord. Jealous with my jealousy, God says. This is the Hebrew word kana. It, it is seen three times in verse 11 and then once more before the end of the chapter. And it is an interesting word because it has a, a sense that does not translate exactly to English. Because it can mean jealous like we think of jealous. But it also carries the idea of zeal, of passion, of fervency. And I think you can see how these two ideas are connected. This is the idea of being passionate for or over somebody. To have a passionate zeal, as in a relationship. You are passionate for that person, and that, that equates to jealousy. You don't want your wife in the arms of another man. You're jealous for her because you are zealous for her. That's kana, and it's how God felt about the children of Israel. He was jealous and zealous for them. He said back in Exodus 34, my name is Kana. My name is jealous. Psalm 69 verse 9, the psalmist said, zeal for your house has consumed me. Hatred of sin is love for God. It is love. It is jealous. It is anger at the thought that someone would raise their hand against your Lord. That someone would dare to defy the one who made you and bought you with the blood of his son. And God honored Phineas with the high priestly line forever. The high priest, of course, first was Aaron. It was supposed to go to Nadab or Abihu, but they committed sin and it went to Eliezer. And God confirms Phineas shall be the next high priest. Because he had functioned as a priest should. He had put a stop to sin within his domain. And I have to stress that to make sure that I am not misunderstood. Phineas was able to enact this violent response because that was his responsibility and authority within this theocratic system that Israel had. Look at how God spoke about them, how the psalmist relayed the story in Psalm 106. It says, they yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. They provoked the Lord to anger with their deeds and a plague broke out among them. Then Phineas stood up and intervened and the plague was stayed. And that was counted to him as righteousness from generation to generation forever. Do you see that it uses the same language to describe Phineas that Genesis 15, 6 describes Abraham? When it says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, it says the same thing about Phineas in Psalm 106, verse 31. He intervened and it was counted to him as righteousness. Faith without works is dead. Justification. It seems in this story that Moses lacked the stomach to do what needed to be done. And might very well have chided Phineas for this. This isn't how we do it. This isn't the way it is to be done. You struck down one of God's people, but God approved of him. And I will say in passing, as we look towards the book of Joshua, we will discuss this in greater detail, but... We live ourselves in a very enormously blessed society when it comes to matters of violence. We don't have marauders at the gates. Most of us will never have to fight for our city, for our town, for our families. Now, crime and other things will affect families, but these are the exception. And I think because of that, we can sit in judgment of the scriptures because we ourselves lack the stomach to do what needed to be done in such situations. We're not accustomed to these things. And I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. But what I'm telling you is do not let your own cultural privilege, blessing from the Lord, cause you to look in judgment upon what God has approved in his scriptures. The Lord approves advocates and even executes violent reprisals against sin. Look at the flood. God said, I will blot out my creation because their heart is only evil continually. Genesis 6 verse 6. He was sorry he had even made man. And he wiped them out. 
We've already mentioned the golden calf. Again, the Levites were sent out to violently put a stop to execute their own brothers, to put a stop to the revelry at the golden calf. Exodus 32, 27. Balaam prophesied in the previous chapter that one day Israel would wipe out Amalek. God sent Saul, the first king of Israel, to destroy, utterly destroy the Amalekites. He said, don't save a thing. It has all been devoted to destruction. Men, women, children, beasts, spoil, plunder, homes, fields, all of it. But Saul actually didn't do that. He saved the best for himself. And in fact, this would come back to haunt them later as Haman, one of the descendants of the Amalekites, almost did exactly that to the Jews in the book of Esther. But in 1 Samuel 15, 33, when the prophet Samuel found out about this, he found out that the king of the Amalekites had not been killed. He said, bring him before me. And Samuel said to King Agag, as you and your sword have made women childless, so your mother will now be made childless. And it says in 1 Samuel 15, 33, Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord. In that instance, the lack of violence was the sin. Have you ever considered the prophet Samuel, the Nazarite from birth with the long beard and the long hair, and he would have been a a man that fasted and prayed, would have been thin and, and spiritual, but covered in blood that had splattered up from this pagan king that he chopped into pieces as he turns to Saul and announces that your kingdom has been torn from you forever? What about Jesus when he cleansed the temple? John 2.15 says that Jesus braided a whip and drove the tax collectors out of the temple, drove the beasts out of the temple, refused to allow people to carry burdens through the temple. And it is is simple foolishness and willful naivete to believe that Jesus did not use that whip. He beat people out of his father's house. He intimidated them enough that they listened to this one man. And we look forward to the second coming of Christ, where the Lord will strike down the wicked and the blood will run like water. Isaiah 63, 3, that he will tread the winepress of Basra. I mean, you can add to these the executions that God mandated in his law for adultery, for idolatry, for rebellion. The judgments that God sent against his own people, raising up Babylon, raising up Persia, raising up Assyria, the cross itself. Sin for all humanity required the ultimate execution. And this is not, I I, I think you would have to willfully misinterpret me to get this, but this is not to advocate for vigilantism. That we've got to go and we've got to act like, like some superhero stalking the night in order to execute sin. But it does mean that you need to recognize the need for radical spiritual solutions to problems within your domain. Phineas's domain included authority to make propitiation for the people. Your domain may be different. But for those of you that will ever, as the Lord says, hold the sword, the sword of the state or the government, we need to understand this. The Bible uses violent imagery to describe dealing with sin. Jesus, Matthew 5.30, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Colossians 3 verse 5, Paul said, put to death therefore what is earthly in you. Galatians 2.20, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its lusts. Romans 8.13, put to death the deeds of the body. Get radical with sin. Can you honestly say that your efforts to end sin in your life could be characterized as violent? Look at your life. This is a rhetorical question. Think and be honest with yourself. If you say, I'm struggling with this sin, I'm struggling with addiction, I'm struggling with pornography, I'm struggling with my temper, whatever it may be, can you honestly say that you have made war against that in your life? I believe it is much more common for people to offer up soft-serve solutions to sin because they're scared to be accused of legalism. We're more scared of that than we are of sin. 
And we will allow these things to continually fester in our lives and in those we love because we do not want to be accused of being ungracious. Not that that is a, an improper concern. But true believers take up the cross daily, Luke 9.23 says. Take up my cross every day. I'm going to climb Mount Calvary and die to myself upon that cross every single day. They examine their soul like a surgeon looking for cancer. No solution is too radical. We go to the doctor and the doctor says there's a growth, there's cancerous growth in your body. We'll have to cut you open and remove it and give you medicine that is going to cause you to become violently ill and your hair to fall out. And we're going to have to blast you with radiation, the thing that we used to wear these hazmat suits to prevent us from getting in contact with. Are you sure you want this? And we don't hesitate because it's cancer. It's got to go. Well, is sin not worse than cancer? Cancer will kill your body, but sin will kill your soul. No bridge is too far to end sin. Within your domain. What steps can you take in your domain? Let's begin with ourselves. We should always start there. If you've got a problem of sin in your life, what are you going to do to put a stop to it? If your family is feeling distant from you, like you work all the time and you're not around, everybody's feeling disconnected because you come home and you're constantly getting work calls, get rid of the phone. I can't get rid of the phone. I might lose my job. Your family would love you to death if you were willing to take a pay cut and a decrease in lifestyle in order to love them better. That's a radical solution. How about in your house? How about in your house, dad, mom? In your household, Are you taking steps to radically and violently eradicate sin from the lives of your children? So many people let their children dictate the the religious temperature in their house. How foolish is that? If you know that your child spending time with that kid is causing them to drift from Jesus, then you pronounce like a good parent should, you're not to see that person any longer. Well, they're not listening. They go to the same school. They go to the same co-op. They live next door to each other. Then move. Move. Show them that you are willing to make a sacrifice for their spiritual well-being. You're not just expecting them to do it. How about in the church? Are you willing to confront somebody in the church when you begin to see gossip or greed begin to take hold? Or selfishness or pride? How about in your community? Oh, now it becomes more difficult. Because while we live in it, we may not have authority in that domain. But what can you do in your community? Can you speak out? Can you go and find a place where your voice will be heard? Can you find a way to engage with those around you? Even the nation. You can at least pray. Radical solutions, violent solutions, finding something and cutting it out of your life, following it into the tent and driving a spear through it. The love of God compels us. Not because I want my, to live my best life. That's just, a, that's just a side benefit. It's out of respect and love for the Lord that bought you. Led you out of slavery. Brought you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And the grief of the Holy Spirit should repel us from those things. Ephesians 4.30 says, do not grieve the Spirit of God. Does it? Let me ask you, does the love of God compel you and the grief of the Spirit repel you from sin? It did Phineas. He loved his Lord so much that he would not allow this to continue. And he was given the covenant of the high priesthood just as the Levites were given the the responsibility for the tabernacle at the golden calf. You've got to take your sin in hand, brother or sister. You've got to take a javelin into the inner room of your own house And say, this is going to die. And if it means that we've got to lose some other things along the way, so be it. I'm willing to go there. Whatever the one thing you won't do to get rid of sin, that will become the foothold and the beachhead by which Satan maintains his occupation in your life. Verse 14. The name of the slain man of Israel who was killed with the Midianite woman was Zimri, the son of Salu chief of a father's house belonging to the Simeonites. And the name of the Midianite woman who was killed was Cosby, the daughter of Zur, who was the tribal head of a father's house in Midian. 
And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, harass the Midianites and strike them down for they have harassed you with their wiles with which they beguiled you in the matter of Peor and in the matter of Cosby, the daughter of the chief of Midian, their sister, who was killed on the day of the plague on account of Peor. We're given here the names of these two sinners, Zimri and Cosby. Zimri means my song and Cosby means my lie. That'll preach on its own, won't it? Your song will be ruined when you introduce lies. And they were both children of high-ranking officials. She was a daughter of the king of, of Midian or one of the elders. It seems that they had a sort of eldership that led the, the nation. And then the other one was of the tribe of Simeon. We're going to see in chapter 26, when we begin to look at the second census of the book of Numbers, that the tribe of Simeon will have decreased in population dramatically. Chapter 1, verse 22, they had 59,300 fighting men. And chapter 26, verse 14, the Simeonites will have 22,200 fighting men. So this plague does not account for all of it, but it seems whenever there's a rebellion or a problem going on in Israel, the Simeonites are right in the thick of it. So God orders Moses to send a war party against the Midianites, for they had beguiled them into sexual immorality and idolatry. They tried to get them to sin so that God would curse them, and the temptation worked. But God, while he does not hold his own people guiltless, he does not forget what these Midianites did. So he orders them to raid the people of Midian, put a stop to sin at the source. That's why we cut things out of our lives. Scripture here, there's two things. Number one, it shames the sinners. And number two, it opposes the sinners. It shames them by giving their names right here in Scripture for all eternity to see. And then it opposes sinners by sending Moses out to strike them down. These are two things we have a hard time with these days. We don't believe in shame. How many anti-shaming campaigns are there? Whatever, whatever kind of shame you can think of, you're not allowed to have it. Because we don't want people to feel bad. And when we get this in the church, we say you can't talk about sin because that shames people and then they'll feel bad and that's unloving. In actuality, sin is shameful. There are certain things of which we absolutely ought to be ashamed You shouldn't be able to look yourself in the mirror after some of the things that you do. And when we try to eradicate this from society that you shouldn't even feel bad about your sin, the prohibition of shame is usually a precursor to approval. When you say things like, you can't tell single mothers that that, that they're somehow not in the ideal situation because they'll be ashamed of themselves and they won't feel good. Well, that leads to those now who are saying things like, there's no such thing as a right way to do family. What do we need dad for? What do we need the structure for? Let's break apart the nuclear family. The prohibition of shame is a precursor to approval. Now there's a difference between social and personal shame. To personally shame someone is to get in their face and wag your finger. I'm not a big fan of that. But there are certain things that society, a church, a congregation, needs to collectively understand to be shameful. And we cannot be afraid to talk about what is right because somebody who did something wrong might be sitting there and feel bad. Philippians 3.19, Paul describes certain false teachers. He says, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. There are so many today that glory in their shame. They define themselves by the most shameful thing about them, and they expect you to come alongside and celebrate it. Sometimes the most loving thing you can do is to allow someone to feel ashamed of themselves. If you're a parent, you know this. When you get your child in trouble for something, All you want to do in your loving parental heart is to run over and make them feel better. But you can't do that too soon. You need to make sure that they feel the weight of what they've done. Don't you know that that's true? That your child will sit through the punishment and just walk away like nothing happened? It's got to hurt. They've got to feel that pain. They've got to know that they've disappointed you. They've got to know that they've failed God and that they've done wrong. 
And we say, well, isn't the gospel opposed to shame? I've heard that one. Yes, the Bible says the Lord will take away your shame and you'll never be put to shame in Christ. After you have come to salvation, God is holding out the offer of removing your shame. But if we remove even the definition of what that is, then no one will want to come and receive the gospel because the first step of the gospel is to be ashamed and fall on your knees and repent. And we don't believe in opposition to sinners. Society doesn't believe that because they, they really have a hard time believing that anything is wrong or right. And as long as it's consenting adults, they can do whatever they want. But Christians don't like this because they say it runs counter to evangelism. We're not supposed to oppose people. We're supposed to share the gospel. Well, yes, but opposition to sin is also a mandate of the church. Especially when it is pervasive, we have a prophetic responsibility to speak truth to our brothers and sisters, to our countrymen. And the gospel message is only good news when people understand the bad news. We sang it tonight. What did Jesus say? Blessed are the poor in spirit. And blessed are those who mourn. If we never announce and proclaim to the world that they are in fact destitute in spirit and never allow them to mourn, they will never see the kingdom of heaven. Consider some of our favorite hymns. Just as I am without one plea. If you never let people get to the place where they recognize they have no plea, they won't come. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. A wretch like me. Martin Lloyd-Jones tells a story of a preacher that began to talk about sin from the pulpit. And there was a well-to-do woman there that scoffed and complained and said, that man speaks to us as if we were sinners. How about this one? Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. That is the attitude that leads to repentance and salvation. That is the brokenness. That is being crucified with Christ. Foul! You look upon yourself. Woe is me, for I am undone. Wash me, Savior, or I die. We must oppose sin. Paul opposed sin, Galatians 2.11. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Peter had begun to rebuild the wall between Jew and Gentile, and Paul got in his face about it. We must oppose sin, and we must especially oppose those who are publicly and loudly advocating for sin. Because we may be the only truth they hear. Romans eleven twenty eight. 28, Paul tells us that while the Jews are beloved by God, they are our enemies as concerns the gospel. Because they are propounding the worst of heresies that Jesus Christ was not the Messiah, did not die on the cross for sins, and did not rise from the dead. So while we love them with all our hearts and pray for them, there are times when we must withstand such people, oppose them, because they're wrong. This is where the hatred of sin begins to carry over into what the psalmist said in Psalm 139, I hate the sinner as well. This is a complicated and, and mature spiritual lesson that we have to learn. That when you see somebody no longer acting as a victim of sin, but as a perpetrator and an advocate and a high-handed worker of iniquity... We not only hate the sin within them, we hate what they do. And the scripture even tells us we hate them. As far as sin is allowed to use them, as far as they are bringing others along with them, we must despise that. And that is not to set aside the love and the joy that, that we hope for them. But we cannot allow that to cause us to allow things to continue. Well, the gospel isn't about opposition. The gospel is about love. Yes, be reconciled to God. You must recognize first that you are an enemy of God and that Jesus is offering you peace for free. Now people say, hear that and say, well, wait a minute, what about Jesus? That doesn't sound like Jesus. Didn't he say you have heard that you shall hate your enemies, but I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you? Oh, of course. Jesus wasn't violent. He was kind and welcoming to all. Yes, indeed he was. But you cannot just focus on the Jesus you like. You've got to love all of him. Jesus publicly shamed the Pharisees. 
religious hypocrites. He publicly called out Herod. He publicly talked about specific sins. You say not to commit adultery. I say if you lust with a woman, you've already committed adultery. He was public in his shame. He's very clear about what was right and what was wrong. When the Sadducees and the scribes came to him, he opposed them to their face. He didn't try to make nice. He said very harsh things sometimes. Jesus talked about hell more than any other author of Scripture. There's a verse that many people love to quote and then not finish. Luke 5.32, I've not come to call the righteous but sinners. What they mean by that is you should have mostly sinner friends and you should hang out with sinners and I don't like church. But finish it. I've not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Jesus was not kicking around with sinners to get his social needs met. He was with them calling them to repentance. They came to his feet and wept over their sin. Jesus' kindness was for the repentant. And by the way, those who want to push some sort of permissive religion, Jesus never sinned. What he violated were hypocritical traditions. It's not the same thing. When we have this reluctance to engage and oppose and speak strongly and have that perfect hatred the psalmist talks about, That leaves us weeping before the altar about the state of the world while sin goes on all around us and Zimri and Cosby pass by without anyone stopping them. No one moves. Like Saul, as the Philistines were ravaging his nation and he sat atop a mountain on a pomegranate tree praying about what to do. It was clear what needed to be done and Jonathan, his son, did. So why are we so reluctant to talk about the hatred of sin? Why is it that we don't want to talk about blood or judgment or hell or curse or any of those things? Why is it that so many people seem to make their primary goal to make Christians feel bad for standing on God's word? And will surround themselves with people from other religions and other various sins to say this is the kind of Christian we like. Why do we keep doing that? Ultimately, I think it is because we do not agree with God that sin is to be hated. That's at the root of it. When you say we must hate sin, we dig in our heels. We like Jesus, not because of who he is, but because we think his example gives us permission to live however we want. We like Jesus because his love and his anti-establishment tendencies suit a democratic culture. They suit a culture that loves liberty and hates being told what to do. I have found that most advocates for tolerance, and by that I mean Christians that seem to have a peculiar ax to grind to get Christians more comfortable with sin. They really want to push Christians to engage more in the culture, not for purposes of evangelism, but just for purposes of lifestyle. To drink more, to swear more, to watch more Filthy movies. What they're doing is not, in fact, evangelism. They're seeking the approval of other carnal Christians. That's who their audience is. I think we discovered that as we ran the seeker-friendly experiment for a couple decades. Those churches didn't fill up with lost sinners. They filled up with Christians that were weak in their faith and full of carnal sin. And then when the pressure came, they all vanished. They deconstructed their faith. Many Christians are in fact admirers of the Midianites. And they secretly desire to yoke themselves to Baal. They have just enough faith to keep them from taking the final step. But they watch from afar and slowly start to grow bitter and resentful against the Lord and his word. People say things like, well... I know this sin isn't right, but I understand why someone would do it. How can you say something like that? Yes, I know that, that she's leaving her husband for another man, but I understand. Yes, I know that they're committing fornication together, but I understand it's tough these days. Yes, I know that he has a temper and, and beats on his wife, but you know, his dad did that to him. I understand. 
There's a difference between understanding and giving approval. Isaiah 55 verse 20, excuse me, Isaiah 5 verse 20, he said, Woe unto those who call good evil and evil good. Would you feel that way about someone who was sick? Well, they're sick, but I understand. You know, this just what happens. You get older. Oh, they have a genetic predisposition. I understand why this happened. Well, their lifestyle wasn't the best. And then would you then let that understanding lead you to deny them a life-saving surgery? Well, I understand. I don't want them to think that they did something wrong. It's not that they did something wrong. It's something that is wrong is happening to them. We would rather be accepted and be part of the culture. Men would rather be ambitious and worshiping the gods of power and status and fertility. And the women would rather be promiscuous. They like the idea of having men at their beck and call and being able to break them of their religion and their commitments. We approve of the latest fads. We propagandize ourselves with endless time in front of the screens. Hate sin? There are more Christians that hate the church. Let me give you an example. When you hear Christians decry Muslim countries for having the capital punishment for homosexuality and talk about it as an example of brutality and barbarism, an example of how that religion is not right, and that's why we should, we've got to oppose these people. The Lord God had the same rule for his people. And when we say things like that, we reveal that in our hearts, we are not haters of sin, but we just desperately desire the approval of the world. If one pleasant conversation with a gay man will change your entire opinion about what God's word has said, you were lost a long time ago. Don't you hate what sin does to people? You want to be seen as tolerant and approving and all of your friends to like you and say nice things about you? Well, meanwhile, this sin is eating this person alive from the inside and the things that are perpetrated in the names of these sins? We're like Demas in the New Testament. 2 Timothy 4 verse 10, Paul wrote that Demas, one of his traveling companions, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica in love with this present world. Now there are those that say, wait a minute, we're, we're supposed to love the world. John three sixteen. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Yes, but you've got to pair that with 1 John two fifteen. Do not love the world or the things in the world. It's the difference of Demas. There's the difference between being in love with the world and having love for the world. Being in love with the world means you desire it to love you back. Having love for the world meaning I'm willing to risk your displeasure, your hatred, and even your opposition. Phineas executed and publicly shamed the sinners. Moses opposed them in war. And both of them did that at God's behest. The God you serve, the God you love, and the God you worship. If you are not all right with that, you've got to get on your knees and seek his face. This was the last gasp of the wilderness generation. The generation that had complained and rebelled and refused to enter the promised land. This is the last of them. In the next chapter, they're going to take a new census of the new generation. And Phineas stands up as the kind of man that's going to lead them. It will be Joshua with Phineas at his side that leads them into the promised land. I've demonstrated from the scriptures tonight that hatred of sin is not only characteristic of God, but must be of us as well. I've also shown that a violent, or shall we say radical, response to sin is a necessary step to following Jesus. Hatred of sin is love for God. If you do not have a profound seething, violent hatred of sin, enraged at those that would defy your Jesus, then your love will be weak. It'll be permissive and ultimately ineffective. If the love that you claim to have for the world is not backed by a hatred of the sin that is dragging them to hell, your love won't help anybody. Psalm 139, I hate with perfect hatred the sin 
and the sinners that perpetrate it. But let us first look to the plank in our own eyes. Matthew 7, verse 5. You can't take this and then say, yeah, those people really need to get their act together. It's you that needs to get your act together. To get radical with sin. You've got hands to chop off and eyes to tear out. You've got work to do. Get radical with your own sin today. Hate it in yourself first. Loathe it. Despise it. Abominate it. When you have something disgusting spilled all over you, you panic and you scream and all you, you run as fast as you can to wash yourself. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. You begin with you. And it may not be that you have any particularly grievous sin haunting your life. It could be that you have adopted a permissive, tolerant, and perfectly postmodern attitude towards sin. And you need to learn to hate it. It does us no good to lament the wickedness in the world and ask when it's going to stop if we are unwilling to do what needs to be done in our own lives and in the community around us. So bury your sin, Christian, before it buries you.